Listen, we're taking our time here in a series. Uh, we just started last week uh, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, New Testament, first letter from the Apostle Paul. And so if you missed last week, don't worry, we didn't get far. We only made it to the first three verses. And maybe today we'll get a few more than that. But we're taking our time and we're just letting the Word of God speak to our hearts and to our lives. And as you find your place in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I want to I wanna give you some motivation for why uh, it's good for us to slow down and to just read the word line upon line and ask the spirit to speak to us. I want to put a verse up on the screen here for you to see. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. And it says this, it says, all scripture is God breathed and it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. We believe that, that, that thought motivates us that every time we open the word of God, whether we're reading in Thessalonians or Leviticus, that that God's breath is on the page and that he can speak to our hearts and lives. And so that's what we're going to do in this moment. And and if church is new for you, I I want you to understand that our heart is not that you would just get some uh, information for your mind, but that the spirit of God would communicate to you on a deeper level. So if you don't have a Bible and you want to uh, put your hands on one, there's one in the book rack in front of you, and we'll put these verses up on the screen. But we want to take a look at this text here in 1 Thessalonians. Last week we began looking at three things that, that Paul was thankful for in this church. In verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul said, We remember before God and our Father three things. He said, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was something about this church that was, it was magnetic. There was something about this church that people were were drawn to. There was something about this incredible church in Thessalonica that was contagious, and there were, Paul was so proud of this church. As he writes to him, he's just overflowing with thanksgiving for what God has done, for what God is doing. And he's, he's explaining the things that he sees in them. Now, we're going to look down a little bit farther, and then we're going to back up to these verses at the end. But for right now, skip down to verse 7 and 8 with me in this first chapter. Because this is what he's moving towards. Paul, writing to this church, says, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Can we just say everywhere? Everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. But we will. Their faith was contagious. They were a model church. And it's one thing to to be attractional when you're doing something that's hot, when you're doing something that's trending, when you're doing something that everybody wants to be a part of. That's that's one thing. But this church was contagious in an atmosphere where it was dangerous to be associated with them. They were contagious in an atmosphere of hostility, of persecution against the church. And even though that being among this group and being among this confession of faith could be a danger to your own health. There was something about them, like, like a moth to a flame. People were attracted to what God was doing 
in this church. Now, last week I, I mentioned to you that Thessalonica is uniquely situated for an expansion of the gospel. As Paul approached that city, he was not just thinking about reaching that city. He was thinking about the opportunity to reach the whole world with the gospel because of a road that went right through Thessalonica. It was called the Ignatia Road. If you were here last week, you remember me talking about that. This was the first freeway. This was a road that stretched all the way from the east to the west and and people flew in and out. Uh, Traffic and commerce and goods flowed in and out of Thessalonica all the time. And so the hope was that if the church can get established here, it can go everywhere. It can go everywhere. I want to just challenge you this morning to consider something. I know we haven't gotten far into the text, but I just want to make an application real quick. Because I believe we live in a day and a time that is absolutely incredible. The opportunity we have, church, to take the gospel. Just the Ignatia Road pales in comparison. I'll give you an example. This week, I booked a flight. I have an opportunity to do some ministry in August in Georgia. And I booked a flight this week from Baltimore to Atlanta for $155.46. That's a good deal. That's nonstop. An hour and 50 minutes, I will be there. I mean, the Ignatia Road's got nothing on that. I mean, that's, that's some convenience that I can take the gospel somewhere within two hours. I can be on the, the southern part of, of the United States. But let me, just, let me just challenge you to think a little broader than that. Right now, this message is streaming live on Facebook. That, that means that anyone... Anywhere, for free, can hear the message that's being presented and they can witness your faith. Amen. That, that ought to make you want to say amen louder so they hear you. Amen. I mean, think about this. Think about this. Without a dime, without spending a dime, you, you could get on Facebook right now. You can, you can log in. You can check in at church. And when you do that, what you're doing is you are stepping into the intersection of your social media network. In the same way that Thessalonica was right there at the intersection of commerce, at the place where life and business merged, you could jump on right now. And some of you are grabbing your phones. Go ahead. You can get on Facebook right now and you can just share the service. And what you're doing in that moment for free, absolute convenience, is all of a sudden you are inserting the gospel into the intersection of your social media network. God has given us an incredible opportunity to be a contagious church you know oftentimes we we think you know in the church world about location and and you know we're we're kind of on the backside of a neighborhood here but listen listen we are at the intersection of somebody's life as a church i i thought this week as i was reading this text about i thought about louise who's sitting back here she lives next door to the church lived there for what 40 years Long time. We'll leave it at that. But one day, curiosity got the best of her, and she decided to come over here and see why there were so many cars in the parking lot. You know, we might not be on Route 30, but we're at the major intersection of her life. She has to drive by this church every day. Every day. And Molly's sitting next to her. She lives about four doors down the other way. Same thing. I see her walk her dog out of my office window. For, for years. And then one day she said, I got to see what's going on over there. 
I think about Jordan Blessing. She's, she's a neighbor right down the street here. And, and we got to know her because of outreach to kids. And she came to this church. And I was able to do her and Nate's wedding. Look, you... And I, as a church, are at the intersection of somebody's life. But can we go farther? Can I tell you that you, individually, have been positioned by God at the intersection of somebody's life? Because they are put in your office. they got to walk by your cubicle a hundred times a week. They've got to back into the dock where you work. They sit next to you for an hour every week because your kids play on the same sports team. See, God has put you at the intersection. He's given us our own Ignatia Road. And God wants us to be contagious with our faith. There was something about this church. They, they seized the opportunity. They received the gospel. And Paul said, your faith, in verse 8, Your faith has been made known everywhere. Everywhere. But can I tell you something? Before it went everywhere, it had to go somewhere. And and so in verse 7, he said, You became a model to all the believers in Macedonia. And I want to just encourage you with that thought that before your faith goes everywhere, it has to go somewhere. Because I believe if your faith is going to be contagious enough to reach the whole world, it ought to impact those that know you the most. The most. If your faith is contagious, it ought to rub off on the people that have the most contact with you. Their faith had an impact right where they live. You know, before Jesus told the disciples to go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, he said, take it to Jerusalem. You know why? Because they were in Jerusalem. Take the gospel right where you live. The testimony about this church, it it goes far and wide, far and wide. But those that lived the closest to him admired him the most. That's to me, that's what integrity is. That's what an authentic Christian life looks like. It's it's a person that, that says the people that know me the best admire me the most. That I'm walking this thing out with authenticity, with integrity. That was this church and and paul is gushing about them at the opening of this letter he just he's so proud of this church he loves this church he loves what this church is doing now we're going to jump in at verse four and we're going to try to work our way back to what we just read but look at verse four with me paul says for we know brothers and sisters loved by god that he has chosen you he calls them brothers and sisters now, this is the first family reference that, that Paul makes. In, in chapter 2, he's going to use many family references. He's telling them, you're the family of God. The, the word in the Greek is adelphoi. And it's a word that means everybody, man or woman, who loves God, Jew or Gentile, is a part of the family of God. He's saying, you're, you're family. You're a part of the family of God with me. Not only that. He says, you are loved by God. I didn't expect to get an amen the first time I said that, honestly. Because we miss the significance of that. I mean, honestly, to say you're loved by God, that's like the first theological truth that we teach kids when they come to church. I mean, it starts in the nursery, right? 
We say, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And so we've heard that one as long as we've heard anything. Yes, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. But you've got to understand the weight of this statement. You see, when, when the church at Thessalonica heard that, it meant more to them than it did when I just said it to you. Because it was a phrase, it wasn't just a statement, it was a phrase that was reserved for the most significant and prominent men of faith in Israel's history. Moses, for example, loved by God. Solomon, loved by God. Abraham, David. These are the people that that statement or phrase was reserved for. These people are loved by God. And the only other time they would use it is when they were referring to the nation of Israel as a whole. The nation of Israel is loved by God. Here's Paul. Writing to this young church, facing persecution. And he says, the, the, same, the same promise, the same title that was given to the greatest men in all of the history of Israel, the, the title that was given to God's chosen people is also given to you. Yes, you, you Gentiles, you people that were far from God, you people that weren't in the covenant, you people who were, have not had the history that we've had, you are loved by God. Amen. Yeah, and they said amen because they understood, wow, there's something significant about what Jesus did for us. When we came into grace, we became loved by God. So Paul's confident in their salvation, and there's a reason he's confident. He's confident because of the transformation that he sees. So in the next few verses, he writes about the reception of this contagious church to the gospel. And then he talks about the response of this church to the gospel. So I, I want to share those two things with you this morning. The reception to the gospel and the response to the gospel. And my hope is this. My hope is that we'll be a contagious church. So I want you to see how the gospel came to him. Look at verse 5. Because of our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you. In that verse, he says there's four, four ways the gospel came to you. First of all, he said it came not simply with words. In other words, there was more to it than that, but let's not overlook that. It came with words. Amen? Can we just clarify something? If you don't share words, you're not sharing the gospel. If you don't share words, you're not now, not just words, but words. They understood the gospel because Paul proclaimed it to them. He proclaimed it to him. It amazes me how many people have this mentality that, that you know, they say, and I don't know where this came from. I don't know who started it. But it's been repeated so many times. That, well, I just let my life be my witness. That's what we, but the question is, a witness to what? Because there's a lot of good people out there. There's a lot of happy people out there. And they would give credence and, and credit to all kinds of things. They would say it's because they live a healthy lifestyle. They would say it's because they eat a well-balanced breakfast. Or, or because they do yoga in the morning. 
or have a glass of wine before bed. I, they all kinds of reasons. Maybe they serve in some, you know, civic responsibility, community service. And we would look at that and go, wow, they're great. Their lifestyle is a witness to what? See, if you haven't used words, you haven't shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. Quit worrying about the words you don't know and just start sharing the ones that you do. Trust me, you know enough of the gospel to be a witness. There was a guy one time that Jesus healed of blindness and, and the, all the religious leaders came and they questioned him and they grilled him and they interrogated him. Who is just Jesus? Who, you know, who do you say he is? Who does he say he is? And, and the man didn't have all of the theological answers, but he had a testimony. And he just kind of shut him down with these words. He said, who he is, I, I, I don't know. One thing I know. I once was blind, but now I can see. Hey man, can you say that today? I, I used to be blind. I can't remember the chapter and verse. I, I'm not exactly sure where it's found, but let me tell you what Jesus did in my life. Let me tell you what Jesus did in my marriage. Let me tell you what Jesus did to help me get over my past. I, I can't remember where it's found. I think my, my pastor preached about it one time, but let me tell you, I was blind. Now I can see. He brought words. The gospel comes with words. But, as Paul says, not simply with words. He says, secondly, it came with power. Power. That's a word that refers to the Spirit's power that's operating through the person that's sharing the gospel. That's why at at the beginning of this message, I told you that if you're unfamiliar with with church or or with proclaiming the word of God as I'm doing, I want you to understand that that we have this faith that says there's two things that are happening. That you're hearing a message on two levels right now. One level is the natural. It's me communicating to you to the best of my ability, trying to make sense of this. But at the same time, there's power that's going forth. And it's not mine. And, and the response and the results does not rest on my eloquence or on my ability to be persuasive. There's power that's going forth out of the Word of God. And that's what Paul says. We didn't just preach with words. We didn't just get up and, and share theory or philosophy. Power went forth. He said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the... Somebody know your Bible this morning? The power of God... Unto salvation. When the word goes forth, it goes forth in power. When the gospel is preached, God is working in that moment. Here's the truth. The truth is, people that are lost in sin, they they don't really care to hear us tell them how to get better, how to do better, how to live better. They're fine. They might not even care if you tell them that Jesus died for their sins unless... Unless the Spirit's at work. When the Holy Spirit's at work, all of a sudden there's power in the Word of God. It's it's active. Hebrews 6.12 says the Word of God is sharp. It is active. It penetrates to the dividing of joints and marrow, soul and spirit. The Word of God works. Isaiah says it like this. Look at this verse in Isaiah 55. So is my Word. That goes out of my mouth, declares the Lord. It will not return to me empty. But it will accomplish what I desire. And it will achieve the purpose for which I sent it. That's the power of the gospel. When it goes forth, it accomplishes what God 
wants it to accomplish. Not only does it go forth in power, but Paul says there in verse 5, it came with the Holy Spirit. Can I just remind us, church, that the Holy Spirit is the greatest soul winner in the universe. The Bible says nobody seeks God unless the Spirit draws him. So here's here's the cool thing about evangelism, because this is where it gets really exciting. When we open our mouth and share the words that we know, the Holy Spirit gets involved. We have an opportunity to partner with the Spirit of God in sharing our faith with people. Jesus said it like this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Many of you could quote it. He said, but after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is after three and a half years of ministry training. They had the words. They knew the text. They could have shared. But Jesus said, wait. Wait, don't run out there and just try to share words. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. Because here's here's what happens, church. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we know that power is in the message. But when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, power is not only in the message. Power is in the messenger. And that's different. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit is alive on the inside of you. When you go out to to share your faith, when you go out to witness to lost people or to communicate with a neighbor, understand that if you're full of the Spirit of God, He's working in and through you. There's a partnership that's taking place in that moment. It's a partnership with the Holy Spirit. Paul says this, because, look at verse 5 again. Because our gospel came to you, the fourth thing is, it came with deep conviction. Paul says, I know about your faith. I know you're saved because the gospel came. We spoke the words and the, the words had power and the Holy Spirit was on us. We had power. But he says it also came with deep conviction. And what he's talking about is, It's his own conviction. He's saying when we shared the gospel with you, myself and Silas and Timothy, Paul is saying when we shared the gospel, we had a deep conviction in our hearts about what we were saying. We weren't just regurgitating something we heard or read before. This was something that was driving our lives. Don't turn there, but just think back with me to Acts chapter 16. This is... This is where it starts for Paul with the Thessalonians. He's ready to take the gospel to Asia. He's prayed about it. He's prepared. In fact, the Bible says he tried many times to take the gospel to Asia, but the Holy Spirit hindered him. The Holy Spirit would not let him go there. And then there in Acts 16, he sees this vision. It's a man from Macedonia. He's begging him. He's waving his arms. He's saying, come, help us. And so, so Paul takes that as the word of God that he's supposed to preach over there in Europe. So instead of going to Asia, for the first time, the gospel goes to Europe. You know where his first stop was? It was Philippi. He goes and he preaches. He gets arrested. He gets beaten with rods. He gets locked in a prison. How many of you think that's enough reason for some of us to want to pack up and go home? Maybe I did hear Asia. I thought it was Europe. Nope. Pretty sure that was just the pizza. The Macedonian man, that was just a dream I had. I'm going to Asia. But he didn't do that. The Bible says the very next morning when he was released from prison, you know what he did? He went straight to life group. 
He did. It's in there. Acts 16, 40. He went to Lydia's house where the church was meeting. So if you have any excuses to not go to life group, they're all gone now because Paul took a beating and got up and made it to life group. So get to the life group. But he goes there and he encourages the church. He prays for them and then he leaves. And he, he goes on to preach to the next place. Why? Why would he do that? Why not stay and, and recover? Why not let the church minister to him? Why not wait till the wounds on his back heal up? Conviction. Conviction. Paul was driven. So he leaves Philippi and he goes to Thessalonica. And he preaches the gospel to this, this church. This church is being started. But as we mentioned last week, he doesn't get to preach too long. Maybe just a few weeks and a riot breaks out. So, so intense that they have to, they have to sneak him out of town in the middle of the night. He sneaks out of town. He goes to the next place. He doesn't quit. He doesn't go home. He doesn't say, you know what? I, I need, I need some R&R. No. He goes from there right over to Berea and he preached the gospel there. And then those people that were in Thessalonica causing a riot, they heard about it. They came to Berea and they started another riot. You think Paul throws in the towel? No. He says, let's try Athens. So he leaves Berea and he goes to Athens. Why? Deep conviction. Deep conviction about what he was doing. Here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. Look at this verse. It says, for when I preached the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach. He says, look, I can't brag about the fact that I preach. Not preaching is not an option. And then he says this, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, we don't, we don't put woes on people anymore. That's not something we say, but trust me, you don't want a woe. <laughs> he said, this is not, it's not going to be good for me if I don't preach. Woe to me. If I don't preach the gospel, I have to preach. Why? Deep conviction compelled him. Deep conviction. That's why he kept on preaching. Listen to this statement. Until your beliefs compel you to go beyond the point of sacrifice, you haven't developed convictions. I'm going to say that again. Until your beliefs compel you to go beyond the point of sacrifice, then you haven't yet developed convictions. I'll give you an example, very practical. Most people in church agree that we should give. Most people would say, giving is, God loves a cheerful giver, we should give, we should be generous. We believe that. But most people in the church give based on desire, timing, based on resources. They give based on what they feel in that moment. Now, tithing is different. Tithing is a conviction. Tithing says, I believe that the first 10% of my income goes to God. That's a conviction. A conviction that says, if I'll be faithful to tithe, God will stretch the 90% I have left farther than I could with the whole hundred. That's a conviction. That's a conviction that says, you know what? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna check the calendar and see what's coming up before I write this check. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna look at how many hours I have coming up before I, I give. 
I'm not going to check to see what else. No, I'm going to give first. It's a conviction. And until your beliefs have pushed you past the point of sacrifice to where it's no longer about what I feel like doing in this moment. No, it's an effort. It's a sacrifice. It's a commitment. Until you get there, you haven't developed any conviction. In the natural, Paul had no reason to want to keep preaching. He had no reason to even get as far as Thessalonica outside of a deep conviction. We heard the word of God and we obeyed. And then look with me at the last verse, the last part of verse 5 and verse 6. What Paul's doing here is he's, he's reminiscing. He's reminiscing about when he preached the gospel. He's, man, when we preached to you, man, the word went forth. There was power. The Holy Spirit was there. The gospel was proclaimed. We had deep conviction. He's remembering what it was like to take the gospel to this community of believers. And he says, because of all that, we have confidence. We know, we know, we know that you, brothers and sisters, are loved by God because of these things. That's how they received the gospel. Now I want you to see how they responded to it. Verse 5b says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul's saying, you know how we lived among you. And part of the reason he's saying that is because he has to defend his own uh, character, because that mob that ran him out of town is still there. They're persecuting the church. They're slandering his name. They're saying all kinds of things about Paul, trying to discredit his ministry. And Paul says, you, you were there. You know, you know me. You know how I live. Don't believe the headlines. You know how I lived for your sake. When I read that this week, you know what jumped out at me? Three words. For your sake. Paul said, I live this way, not because I wanted to, not because I had a... Strong conviction to live this way. I live this way for your sake. Now, how different is that from much of the world that we live in today? Where people want to demand their rights and their privileges. And, and even in the church, to demand our freedoms. Say, well, I can, I can do this. I can do that. Paul was the very opposite of that. Paul said, there's things that I did. There's a way that I lived. And I lived that way, not for me. I lived that way for your sake. There was things that I abstained from for your sake. There were things that I did to be an influence on your life. I want to tell you, a, a contagious church is not a church that's demanding their rights. It's a church that lives above reproach. It's a church that is excellent in what is good, Romans 16 says, and innocent of what is evil. I just want to tell you this morning, some of the moral choices that we make, we would be wiser to make those choices, not in light of our rights, but in light of our witness. Not in light of what is acceptable, but in light of what is best. The choices that I make, how are they going to affect my witness to those that know me, to those that I'm rubbing shoulders with? Making decisions based on our witness and not on our rights. Because Paul says this in the next verse. In verse 6 he said, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. And that's the way it happens, by the way. 
discipleship. They become imitators of us first. And then of the Lord. They were looking at his life and he said, we lived in a certain way. We kept standards. We followed Christ and and you followed us. And in following us, you followed Christ. See, Paul understood that. That's why he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. So he said, you know how we lived for your sake. This is a little bit of a side road, but I want to stop here because this is something that God spoke to me about and, and he's still teaching me. So let me give you a parenting tip to all the moms and dads. What you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. It's important that we keep that in mind because we're talking about those who know us best being affected by our witness the most. We're talking about them following you and the Lord. We, we hope that one day it doesn't come down to a choice. We hope it's you will follow me or the Lord. <laughs> like you, you know, we don't want them to follow Jesus in spite of us. And what you do in moderation, your kids will do in excess. So here's what that says to me. As a mom or a dad, there are, there's a way that I live for their sake. There, there's, there's channels I don't watch. Not because it's not my right. I'm a grown man. I can watch what I want to watch. But for your sake... I I don't go on that channel. For your sake. We could stay here all day. But the reality is you got to make you got to make a conscious choice of whether you're going to demand your rights. Or make moral choices based on your witness. See, for me, even issues that are not clear to a lot of people are very clear to me because it's not about my rights. It's about my witness. My girls won't open the fridge and find alcohol in it. Not because I'm. I'm entitled. But because what I do in moderation, they'll probably do in excess. So I got to draw the line somewhere in my life. And for your sake, you know how we lived. And as I lead this church, for your sake, I want you to know how I live. Because I want you to be, I want to say, and you should want to say, follow me as I follow Christ. I don't want anyone following me to get to the fork in the road and realize I'm either going to, I'm either going to be like him or Or I'm going to be like Jesus. Now, we're far from perfect. But with the help of the Holy Spirit, people ought to be able to follow us and stay in the lane and follow Jesus. Amen? Amen? You received that today? Amen. Maybe that was just for me, but thanks for listening. Look at the next part of verse 6. Here's what he says. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. With the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. With the joy given by the Holy Spirit. You know, in the Pentecostal church, and this is one by the way. We often talk about the physical evidences of the Holy Spirit. We talk about the gift of tongues and, and the gift of prophecy. And, and those, are, those are incredible evidences. But, you know, when I read this verse, I thought, wow, that's an incredible evidence of a spirit-filled life. You want to see evidence that somebody's walking in the spirit? Watch them hold on to joy in the midst of severe suffering. That's what Paul said about their life. He said, in the midst of severe suffering, you had joy given by the Holy Spirit. 
And you did it because you were imitating us. They saw how Paul and Silas and Timothy lived. They saw how they came into town with their backs still bleeding and, and healing from the beating that they had just taken in Philippi. And yet they proclaimed the, the salvation. They, they proclaimed joy. They proclaimed hope in Jesus Christ. And the church saw that. And they modeled that for them. And they, they imitated them in that. Intense persecution, yet they held joy. I tell you, the only way that happens is if you're filled with the Spirit of God. Because happiness is based on happenings. You can lose that real quick. But joy is tethered to the anchor that we sang about earlier. Joy, joy is, is, is there in the celebration and the suffering. Joy remains. At the end of this letter, not the end of this chapter, at the end of this letter, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul, he challenges them. He gives them this exhortation in in chapter 5 and verse 16 through 19. He says, rejoice always. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. If you've wanted to memorize scripture and you have a hard time memorizing things, I would suggest you start there. (laughs) Rejoice always. Two words. Pray continually. That could be your next verse. Scripture memorization. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's Paul's writing to a church of people that that saw him model this. They saw him hold on to joy in the midst of severe suffering. And now he's exhorting them, you, pray continually. You, continue to rejoice. You, give thanks in all circumstances. Say, wow, that's hard. That's really tough. Yes, it is. It's no wonder that the very next verse, verse 19, says, do not quench the Spirit. Because the only way you're going to maintain joy in all circumstances is to be filled with the Spirit of God. And we said this last week, but I want to say it again. Your pain is a platform. When you suffer and you hold on to joy, you have an opportunity to be a greater witness in that moment than in any other situation. Now, we're not standing in line looking for suffering, but we understand it's coming. I mean, the Bible says that. Jesus said, in this world... You will have trouble. It's going to happen. Paul wrote it another place. Anyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. So it's coming. The question is, when it comes, are you going to be one that, that cowers to the circumstances or you do have something on the inside, joy that, that rises up, that sustains you, that you're tapped into, that's an incredible, incredible witness. The same spirit that flows through our gifts flows through our grief. Oftentimes, we want the Spirit. We want the Spirit. And, and we think of the, the outward manifestations. We think of, of the tongues and the, the interpretation of tongues and prophecy and, and all those gifts and their great gifts. But I want to let you know, if you're filled with the Spirit and the service ends and there's nobody to interpret for, nobody to prophesy to, and you go through a storm, it's the same Spirit that flows through your grief that flowed through your gift. That's the spirit that, that makes the church contagious. 
That's a spirit that when people see it, they go, there's something different about them. There's something different about the way that they handle their circumstances. A contagious Christian is one that holds on to hope in the worst storms. Suffering isn't an obstacle to being used by God. It's an opportunity to be used like never before. This church saw that in Paul. God used him in spite of incredible persecution. And because they saw it in him, they became imitators of him. And they, in effect, their message reached the whole world. That's what he said in verse 8. Your your message, it rang out. It rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and in Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. Now, what was Paul saying in that moment? He, He was still out preaching. He was still going to other places. And the reason he said, we don't have to say anything about your faith is because he would walk into a town and he would start talking about how this gospel is changing lives. And he'd say, let me tell you about what God did in, in the, in the metropolis of Thessalonica. And they go, oh no, no, we know about that church. You do? Oh yeah. No, there were some people that they told us about it. We, we heard about what God did there. We already know all about it. You go, wow. So then he'd go to the next place and he'd start Saying, well, let me tell you, this gospel can change your life. Let me tell you what God did in Thessalonica. Oh, we heard about them. You did? Yeah. Yeah, we know about that church. There were some guys from Thessalonica that that shared Christ with us. And everywhere, everywhere he went, he says there's no need to say anything about it. Let me read the, the rest of the sentence to you. Verse 9 and 10 finishes the thought. Here's why there's no need to tell anybody about you. He said, because they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Just like God positioned that Thessalonican church at a major intersection so that their gospel could go everywhere. God has also positioned you. God has positioned me. God has positioned this church at the major crossroads of somebody's life for the purpose that our gospel could not just be received, but that our gospel could ring out To everyone, everywhere. The question here, the the takeaway is simply this. What gospel are you preaching? Now you may never stand up on a platform and and speak to a, a large audience, but those that know you best, those that you rub shoulders with, those that are most prone to catch what you got. What gospel are you preaching? Because the reality is there is a message that's ringing out. From all of us. Just as sure as God's given you influence. Like he gave them influence. Your message rings out. I read a poem this week. That summarizes this thought pretty well. The gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Are read by more than a few. But the one that is read the most. And commented on is the gospel according to you.
You are writing a gospel, a chapter, each day. By the things that you do and the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether it's faithless or true. Say, what is the gospel according to you? Do men read his truth and his love in your life? Or has yours been too full of malice and strife? Does your life speak of evil? Or does it ring true? Say, what is the gospel according to you? God's heart for us is that we would be a model church. God's heart for you is that you would be a contagious Christian. A church a church that is responsive, that is receptive to the gospel. And a church that imitates Christ and becomes a witness to the world. A church that holds on to joy in the midst of severe suffering. I want to pray for